The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What's going on? Our sources at the courthouse tell us the grand jury may come back with indictments against two city councilmen. The redevelopment fund scandal. Yeah, we've got a camera crew there. They've been denied access. We're not sure which two were named. We're not sure the information is accurate. So you know that, you don't have a story. Yeah, but we hear CNN's about to go with it, so... So they must know something we don't. I'll make a few calls. I know some bailiffs. I'm on the air in four minutes. Not unless you have something to report. Right on the floor, people. We're live in five, four, the grand jury today handed down indictments calling for the arrest of Metropolis City Councilman Fertig and Montang. As you can see from this exclusive tape taken outside the courthouse, the councilmen have already been remanded into custody, and we will be covering their arraignment later this afternoon. For now, I'm Sandra Ellis for LNN News. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, December 13, 2012. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. And welcome once again to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call to reach us. And of course, Robert Vaughn is away today and next week, due primarily to his current geographical location, I guess you could say, somewhere out in British Columbia, where he's conducting a training course for his employer. So, we don't expect him back until our first show in the new year, which would be January 10th, if my crystal ball is working quite right. We still have one more show to do this year, and that'll be next week's show before we wrap it up for the holiday season. Now, what are we talking about today? Well, you find ancient Chinese philosophy Confuciusing? <laughs> Try Yang too. No, not a herbal rem- remedy, but a philo- philosopher with a philosophic remedy. Talk about that in the last quarter of the show. Justice gone to pot. We'll be talking about prohibition and pot, tobacco, drugs, and alcohol, and some of the latest developments that have occurred on that field. And still stirring the pot. Mark Emery will take a look at what he's had to say. He did his first uh, interview from his jail in Mississippi uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we'll be talking about that. It was a radio interview done on a Sunday. But to open up the show today, Ford and Fontana, a tale of two mayors. Boy, you read the papers today. Quick, guess who this headline is about? Quote, Mayor vows to fight boot from office, end quote. No, not London's Mayor Joe Fontana, but Toronto Mayor Rob Ford in the pages of November 27th's National Post. In contrast, London's version reads this way. I will not stand aside, Fontana says. And that's from the November 21st Metro News. Both mayors are in front of a judge in January, last I heard, I think a day apart from each other. One mayor faces a criminal charge and continues to sit on city council while the other faces a conflict of interest charge, which has had him, judicially at least, and still symbolically, removed from office by a court. 
It may seem strange, doesn't it, that a conflict of interest charge can carry more legal weight than a criminal charge in these circumstances? I mean, in terms of um, being able to remove the mayor from his seat. But I think that's because the former pertains directly to municipal activity and the business of the city, while the latter is sort of an arm's distance removed from municipal affairs. The accusations against Joe Fontana have have nothing to do with his performance as mayor, but as past MP. And um, by the way, I just wanted to get this in before I forgot to mention it. You know, the person who has formally charged Rob Ford, the the mayor of Toronto, his name is Paul Magder. It should be made clear that that is not the Paul Magder who was associated with the Sunday shopping issue or with Freedom Party in the past, which you can now see on FP's YouTube channel, by the way. This Paul Magder is not the Toronto Furrier Paul Magder, okay? So they're two separate people entirely, just happen to have the same name. Now, I don't know what your opinion is on this. I... I, have, I wasn't there to see who's guilty and who, who's done what or who hasn't done what. But one thing I do see is that Ford and Fontana are both under attack by their political enemies. Both attacks are about serious principles, but they're relatively trivial matters. In one case, you've got a disputed $1,700 payment by the federal government to the Marconi Club that appears to be a payment for, you know, quote, Joe's son's wedding. And in the second case, with Ford taking part in a city council vote, which, by the way, was not contested by anyone at the time, to not make him pay back, although he didn't take anything or receive nothing, a little over $3,000 for a charity because the original solicitation was mailed out on the mayor's official letterhead. Again, serious principles, but trivial matters. Rome is burning and we're lighting matches. That's what's happening here. In London, Nancy Branscombe, who uh, was one of the early leaders of the attack on Fontana, has all but officially announced her permanent departure from city politics. Heard her talking on another radio station. Now, you know, her her London North Conservative nomination notwithstanding. But uh, as she vowed not to seek two terms or, or not to run for mayor under any circumstances, that's what she said on the radio. So no matter what her political career ends up after this provincial election, apparently she's not coming back to municipal politics, at least according to what she said. And um, it should be noted, too, that the movements to oust Joe from office, Joe Fontana here in the city, began before any formal charges were actually laid. Now, here's the part that disturbs me a bit, you know. Meanwhile, the public in all of this is behaving, I hate to say it, like a mob. Um, It's jungle justice, out the window with due process, etc., etc. And I don't know if people have thought about this, but If you really believe, and we should be believing, the presumption of innocence until proven guilty, under that presumption, those calling for the removal of Joe Fontana are, in effect, calling for the removal of an innocent person. I can't see it any other way. And for me, I think this is perhaps the most disturbing dimension of the whole issue. Like, I'm thinking, holy smokes, people, do you realize what you're doing? Do I have to climb on the cross and scream, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they are doing? Because that's, that's how I feel about some of this. This is not about guilt or innocence or who's guilty or, or what. It, this, this is about our whole democratic system, and that's what I see on display here. What, where, what has happened to our, quote, system of democracy, if you know what I mean? Has anyone thought this through? Before he was charged, people were arguing that Joe should step, step down with full pay until the RCMP concluded its investigation. 
Now, in theory, that investigation could have taken years, and in practice, it sometimes does. So you can see the practical problem of this. It would end up being an indefinite leave of absence with pay. <laughs> you know, I want to be sarcastic about this. This almost sounds like a deal to me. Get elected as mayor. Get yourself falsely accused of something, something you can prove your innocence on later on. Step down with pay. Drag the investigation and court case out as long as you can. Retire when you return. And sue a few people just for fun afterwards. <laughs> I tell you, I'm just kidding, of course. No one would ever think that way under any circumstances. But hey, that's just the practical problem. Then there's the political problem. Joe Fontana's absence means that council's direction could be turned against the wishes and intentions of the mayor and those who support that direction. It turns out he's a tiebreaker most of the time. You've been hearing a lot about this. So, you know, be sure to take a second look at just who wants Joe removed from office and why. Joni Beckler held her symbolic vote on the issue of Joe's removal, I think it was just the night before last, was it, and lost, knowing in advance that the motion was destined to lose. But here's the clincher, of course. Even if the motion passed, it carried no authority or weight in terms of forcing the mayor from his seat. And then there's the democratic problem. Politicians are citizen representatives. If all it takes to remove them is to accuse them publicly of something, do we want every politician we don't like just to take a leave of absence every time a public allegation is made about them? Can you, can you see the problem here? There's power at stake here, and don't think there aren't people who won't make such allegations. And, you know, does anybody even remember why we even have due process and the rule of law? Does anybody care? Certainly not the people who are using the law to force a political outcome. Now, I'm not trying to understate or dismiss the seriousness of the specific allegations and practices at question here. In one case, they are alleged at this point in time and therefore are not actionable, I think, on any grounds, moral, legal, or political. While in the other case of Rob Ford... The court has already, you know, quote, found him guilty of an actionable offense. One so trivial. Remember, it wasn't the letterhead. It wasn't the charity fundraiser. It wasn't the few thousand dollars that were raised for and received by the charity. His offense was in voting on the matter of having to return the amount received by the charity to the people who gave money to the charity. <laughs> this is all just so stupid and unbelievable, it's hard to fathom that we're even talking about it. Again, while Rome, Toronto, and London burn, the citizenry fiddles and lights matches. I've been learning real quick that Joe Fontana certainly has a lot of enemies and people who simply don't like him for whatever reason. Uh, some have legitimate reasons. Uh, more do not, at least in terms of what I've heard people saying on the various open-line talk shows. Some reasons are political and based on policies. Others are very much personal and very emotional. But as much as we might be tempted to focus on that aspect of the situation, this isn't about the character or reputation of Joe Fontana or of Rob Ford. I think it's a lot bigger than that. Yeah, bigger than Rob Ford. It, it, it's about a collapsing democratic process and disrespect for the law. And what we're seeing in both London and Toronto city halls, I think, are two big sparks just lighting up and illuminating kind of a vision of that collapse. The overall anger of the electorate is just becoming more and more palpable each and every coming day. I increasingly fear that a lot of that anger is misdirected. 
especially when you think that Joe Fontana's commendable and doable 0% tax in- increase stand and Rob Ford's wanting to get control of Toronto City budget are at stake. Seems to me there's something larger going on here, don't you think? Uh, you know, the hatred of Rob Ford by the left in Toronto is just like the misdirected dislike of Fontana. Toronto City Council <laughs> once actually banned the use of plastic bags by shoppers in that city solely to get back at Rob Ford. That's how bad things are getting. So what do I do? I pick up this, this article from the National Post by Natalie Alcoba, Toronto City Hall Council, November 29th. And she says that the City Hall Council is now facing a sting of lawsuits by industry and community groups. And so, to protect themselves, councillors recently voted 38-7 to 7 to scrap the draft bylaw that it would implement the ban, end quote. Quote, Mayor Ford won today. The environment lost. Toronto lost. Rude Councillor Gord Perks. So, you know, even when they're being confronted by industry and community groups, it's still Rob Ford's fault and Rob Ford's victory, Rob Ford's loss. You see, Rob Ford's the symbol of their hatred of capitalism and freedom and whatever else is it they hate about government. But that's the bigger picture, and it kind of disturbed me to see what's coming on, you know, coming up with this. Whether these issues will be behind us by this time next month or just beginning, a new chapter in the crisis of democracy in our municipalities remains to be seen. Each mayor is up before a judge early in January 13th, I think even before our first broadcast of that year. So we'll know a lot more about the situation and the facts when that happens. Now, more politics coming up on the other side of this following interlude. And I suppose if it's bannable, the political will will ban it. We've just been talking about how the Canadian democratic and justice system is going to pot in municipal politics. When we return, we'll just see how literal they're taking it. From politics to drugs, tobacco, and contraband laws. More politics. We'll be back. Dean. Yes, Councilwoman Hodes. You're going to have to stop smoking pot. I can't have you getting busted. I am making a Grastic a drug-free zone. Warn your dealer. While a proposal to ban the possession of tobacco by anyone under 19 years of age is drawing some strong reaction. As Casey Colby reports, the idea comes from a political action group opposing the contraband tobacco trade. Matt is 18 years old. In Ontario, it's illegal for him to buy cigarettes, but he says he never has a problem getting his hands on them. Uh, I think they get it from their older friends, maybe their parents, maybe kids at school. According to statistics, 85% of smokers start before their 19th birthday. The national campaign against contraband tobacco wants the federal government to make it illegal for anyone under 19 to be in possession of tobacco. It's a controversial idea that gets strong reactions. I don't think it should be done. I think it's ridiculous. Yes, I do. Stop legislating what goes on in people's lives. 19-year-old Kate is a smoker who says we should be concerned about the more dangerous illegal activities that young people are doing. There's so much worse things out there than smoking a cigarette. You have people doing heroin and meth. 
But Colleen Wormsley is a mother who says banning possession of tobacco to those under 19 is a good idea. I'd like to see it being breaking the law and for something to be done about it because they're going to kill themselves. Leslie Gordon of the Simcoe Muskoka District Health Unit says one of the ways underage smokers are getting cigarettes is from buying contraband cigarettes, either from stores or from traveling dealers for a price that many find hard to resist. You can buy illegal cigarettes, you can buy them in baggies of 200 for the price has just gone up, we're told, to about $30. Buying those cigarettes legally would cost three times as much. Gary Grant is with the National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco. He says aside from just getting young people hooked on tobacco, there are multiple other dangers with illegal smokes. The risk being that the cigarettes are garbage, uh, the risk being that they're buying things off organized criminals and maybe uh, having access to more than just cigarettes from criminals, and we're talking from people as young as 12 and 13 years old. The National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco says even though youth smoking rates continue to hover at an all-time low, the fact that young people are still getting their hands on cigarettes, legally or illegally, remains a fight that should concern everyone. In Barrie, Casey Colby, A News. Wow, imagine what we just heard there. You know, I've been waiting for a while to comment on that 2009 A-Channel news clip on a proposed tobacco ban here in Ontario. Uh, that's A-Channel, Channel 10 here in London, which is now, of course, CTV. Though it was about tobacco, it follows all the classic patterns of the corrupted minds of prohibitionists on any subject of any, quote, harmful substance from sugar to heroin. You know, proposal comes from a political action group opposing the contraband tobacco trade. It's illegal to buy cigarettes in Ontario, but kids have no problem getting them. So what's the story there? Is making it illegal doing anything? The national campaign against contraband tobacco wants the federal government to make it illegal for anyone under 19 to be in possession of tobacco. You know, I remember when I was a little kid, I was five, six years old, I used to go down to the store and buy a pack of cigarettes for my mom and dad all the time. Nobody ever hesitated handing it to me. And I never smoked cigarettes ever in my life. But apparently that's not how they think it should work. I should be smoking, I guess, because I touched them before I was 19. It's kind of a motherhood and apple pie argument that always leads to hoods in the neighborhoods who want to monopolize their piece of the big apple pie of the contraband trade. And this is what always starts it. And look at the ridiculous prices and differences between what's legal and supposedly illegal, and that's not what really it's all about. In that clip, we heard 19-year-old Kate say, go after the heroin and meth users. Well, now she's a smoker of tobacco. She just shot her own argument down. She hasn't yet learned to think about others. Now, she's only 19, and at least at that time, and still kind of in self-centered mode, at least when it comes to her habit, smoking tobacco. Right now, the government's going after people like me, who like a lot of sugar. That's me, so I guess I could use the same argument as Kate did and say that, well, they should go after more serious drug abusers like tobacco smokers. You see, it's kind of a chain argument. Each person down one, one level of the, arg of, of, the, of the drug chain wants the government to go after the next guy one step up. Not chain smoking, chain argument. Colleen, who was in that clip, who was identified as the mother, says banning is a good idea because the smokers are going to kill themselves. Well, that may be. But what will banning do? People just don't think about that side of the equation. They haven't thought about it. It's pure rote. It doesn't make sense. That is the connection between prohibition and prevention of harm. The evidence is exactly 
the opposite, even though it runs counter to, to intuition. You can buy 200 illegal cigarettes in 2009, according to that report, in baggies for $30. Illegal ones are $90. So guess who's behind the drive to get rid of cheap cigarettes? The folks who are selling the expensive ones, maybe? Pure hypocrisy, pure greed, aided and abetted by the law because of prohibition and controls. Gary Grant with the Nation, or National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco, who was heard on there, you know, there he is. I don't know how, how greater hypocrisy could be, but he's saying their cigarettes are garbage. They buy from criminals. Our cigarettes are good. Buy from us. Pay three times as much. Our cigarettes are a lot better. Now, you know, what rational or moral group could possibly distinguish between legal or contraband poison, if that's how you're going to look at it in the first place? And, of course, the bottom line is, without the prohibition and stuff, youth, youth smoking rates hover at an all-time low. So why talk about prohibition? What, are they trying to get the numbers up again? I'm, I'm not joking about that. Because the nature of the drug is not the issue. The nature and philosophy of the drug prohibitionist is, when you take a closer look at their arguments and at the people behind the arguments, it's alarming how many of them are, and I can't describe it in another way, but the best word I can find is like they're moral sociopaths. They don't see the utter waste and unnecessary suffering that their philosophy and ideas and policies derive from and have caused other people. Whatever harm drugs themselves do, drug prohibition causes far greater harm and to a wider circle of people who do not even include drug users or abusers. So you're, you're, you're sucking in people who wouldn't even know about drugs. Many prohibitionists seem to be very unhappy or in pain, or ex-users whose own negative experience is their excuse for punishing others who do the same thing that they did. But on the surface, they're all very nice people and leaders of the community, and usually politically conservative, I have to say, irrespective of the particular party they may vote for from time to time. Small c. Who benefits from prohibition? We already know who pays and suffers, everybody, but who benefits? Well, number one, organized crime, always a number one supporter of drug laws, and the num number one profiter of drug laws. And of course, politicians who also resort to force instead of persuasion and cooperation and freedom. These are the number two profiters of drug laws, which means that a significant portion of the public is also morally corrupt or indifferent, which is, I guess, another form of corruption in light of the knowledge. Otherwise, they would not be getting their support. You know, if the politicians and criminals in Mexico, for example, were not in full agreement on this, I don't think there'd be any drug wars there. Prohibition gives both sides, the criminals and the politicians, unearned power. Political power on the one side, criminal power on the other. Both powers are based on the same thing. The initiation of force. Not its retaliatory, not its defensive use, but the initiation of force. Which, you know which is not allowable in something that we call a civilization. When we call something a civilization, you know, when we speak of free enterprise, free markets, free people, we don't mean free from government, never. We mean free from coercion. And when your government starts coercing you, which means initiating force against you, when you haven't really done anyone any harm besides perhaps yourself, and that's not their business, then you're going to have problems. When governments force us to make economic or personal choices, then they are no longer protecting life, liberty, and property. 
but violating those things in the most fundamental of ways. And fundamental means that there will be an infinite array of negative consequences in areas that reach far beyond the immediate violation, such as a drug law, for example. The most immediate consequence of drug prohibition is outright injustice, total injustice. You know, and it's an earned and justified disrespect for the law that comes along with that. If the laws don't respect their people, the people don't respect the laws. And for our law enforcers, who've been reduced to a political police rather than peace officers, you know, it's it's all very disheartening if you really think about it. I had an article sent to me from Lawyers Weekly on November 30th. Pot laws out of step, Prof says, Christopher, by, written by Christopher Gale, Gooley, G-U-L-Y. Nearly a decade removed from an unsuccessful challenge of Canada's marijuana possession laws that ended up in the Supreme Court of Canada, criminal law professor Alan Young says it's amazing and shameful that the country is moving out of step with an American neighbor on the issue. On U.S. Election Day, when Colorado and Washington voted to legalize pot, Justice Minister Rob Nicholson announced that the target... Targeting serious drug crime component of Bill C-10, the Safe Streets and Communities Act, came into force imposing mandatory minimum penalties related to possessing and producing marijuana for the purpose of, tra- of trafficking. Now under new penalties for Schedule II drugs, cannabis and marijuana, anyone convicted of growing between 6 and 200 plants for the purpose of trafficking faces a mandatory minimum of 6 months in prison. Someone convicted of producing any amount of oil or resin for the purpose of trafficking spends a minimum of 1 year behind bars. What, what, what arbitrary, utter arbitrariness. And Toronto, Toronto criminal de- uh, defense lawyer Daniel Brown says, quote, you can possess child pornography, beat up your wife, break into someone's house, and perhaps even commit sexual assault without going to jail for a year. But if you're found to have produced even one gram of hash oil, you trigger the mandatory minimum. He believes the new drug offense-related mandatory minimums are only bastardizing the criminal justice system by moving away from its basic tenets of the presumption of innocence. Oh, where did we just hear that? Municipal politics, maybe? The right to a trial and the onus on the Crown to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Of course, they're predicting that a lot of these cases will never be heard because already minimum sentences are being thrown out of the jails because they just can't do it. It already came up with uh, some gun owner issues where people were being tossed in jails just because they happened to have a gun. And, you know, so the courts will start invalidating mandatory minimums related to drug offenses because they will see the injustice. Now, Helen Young says that Harper's conservative government is committed to governing by what it thinks is right, interestingly enough, rather than in response to statistics showing that mandatory minimums have no effect on anything. Since Harper has come to power in 2006, he's created 41 new criminal offenses and amended the criminal code 27 times, which has to be unprecedented. Since Parliament normally makes three or four amendments every decade, Young said. We need a change in government. That's the only solution. (laughs) Although a recent forum research inc. poll found that 33% of Canadians favor the legalization of marijuana and 32% the decriminalization of small amounts, the federal government supports neither. Now, that's what was said in that Lawyer's Weekly. And, of course, those figures actually are much lower than the ones the Free Press was just uh, printing in their series on on pot laws. They were up near 40s and near 50%. Coming up to the bottom of the hour right now, we'll be continuing this discussion on the other side. But the first voice we're going to hear uh, coming up right next is Alan Young, the person we're just talking about. But this was from a 2009 episode of Steve Pakin's The Agenda, where he discusses the folly 
of uh, the non-debate of legalize versus decriminalize. And in, also in this debate are included Peter Selby from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health and Ethan Nadelman, who is the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance. And we'll be back when we return after our messages. Alan. I think you do have to address the issue of criminalization versus decriminalization because there's two approaches. Either build a prison or construct a safety net. And I don't think you can do them simultaneously. We don't have enough money for them, and they're contradictory impulses because if you build too many prisons and stigmatize, people aren't going to take the safety nets for fear of being stigmatized. So you've got to make a choice. You've got to make a choice. You can't sit on the fence on this. And you obviously favor... Yeah, I, I think I, I've seen 100 years of disaster with no benefit, and I think it's time to make a change. Uh, whether it's going to work, time will tell, but I know what we currently do does not work. Peter? Yeah, I don't believe that we should punish people who s display symptoms of a disease. Absolutely not. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't punish people whose, whose blood sugar is high with, with, with a jail sentence. You know, it's but the same... What if they're not diseased, just well, users? Again, we, we, we have systems in place mm -hmm. that, you know, you certainly can use it. The question is, is there a way to use... I mean, you, you mentioned the word jail, but is that the only option? Are there other ways in which there's no wrong door into getting help? No, I understand. We have a lot of people who say, you know, it was only when I got picked up for mm -hmm. a drinking and driving that I realized what was mm -hmm. happening in my life. And that became the pivotal thing for me to change my life. Yeah. So I can't discount that when people say, you know what, that made the difference. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was that opportunity. So it doesn't need to the But the I want to make the choice to help myself. I don't sure. need the state yeah. to incarcerate me for my benefit. Little, but I do understand. But it's not incarceration. Mm -hmm. Let me, let me see. Wait, 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 I actually, I think it helps to sort of go back to basic principles on this stuff. I mean, I I start, and I think many people do, with a, with a very fundamental principle which oftentimes isn't articulated in our general society, and it's that nobody but nobody deserves to be punished simply for what they put in their body if they don't hurt anybody else. Right? What I put in here, what you put in there, it's, you don't deserve to be punished for that if you're not hurting anybody else. That's about having sovereignty over my own mind and body, and it's none of the government's business, none of the employer's business, and it's just here. Now that said, if secondly I land up having a drug problem, if I land up being one of that 5%, 8% that's addicted, then I deserve a compassionate response, and I deserve a response that's actually grounded in science and in good values and in public health, and there's a wide spectrum of what might work. It might be a drug-free program, a 12-step program, might be methadone or heroin maintenance, might be a whole range of other things. And finally, if I do hurt somebody else, if I get behind the wheel of a car when I'm under the influence, if I do some reckless act, if I'm a doctor who operates when I'm drunk and, and does something, then I deserve to be punished. And my addiction cannot be an excuse. It can be a reason for a judge to say, now wait a second, you need treatment, not a jail cell. But it cannot be an excuse. So those principles, freedom, compassion and responsibility, I think that would shake out our drug policy in a radically different way, in a much better way. Bruce, stand by one second. I follow the logic of the argument. Does it go across the board? Would you allow pilots, for example, to smoke up on the weekend when they're not flying? If there was no evidence whatsoever that smoking a joint on Friday night affected his performance on Monday morning, then yes. Because I'll tell you something else about pilots. They have this huge disincentive to, uh, to abuse drugs, and it's called gravity. <laughs> okay. They can't all land on the Hudson yeah. perfectly, right? That's so amazing, man. I guess uh, you can tell by looking at me that there is yet to be a drug I haven't tried. 
Now, I'm not advocating it to anyone, but I'm going to tell you this story. It's a long story, and it's the last one I'm going to do tonight. Um, just because I went to Winnipeg, and something happened. I was doing two weeks there at a comedy club for the Pan Am Games, and it was really exciting, right? On the two days off I had, which was the Sunday and Monday, I got invited up to a Canadian cottage. This guy came over, and he goes, do you want to do some acid? And then this dude comes over and goes, hey, man. I said, hey. He goes, you want to go water skiing? <laughs> the man, I am hammered. He goes, come on. I've never done it before, and I'm petrified. He goes, come on. And I said, okay, because it seemed important to him, right? So I thought. <laughs> so I'm sitting drunk on the couch, and I get up to go now. And I get up, and as I get up, this little dude walked over, and I sat back down, because I get scared of little people, right? I don't know why. I always think they're guarding some afterlife or something, right? But I listen to them, because they guide you, right? So this little four foot 11 guy in bare feet came over, right? And he walks up to me, and I'm like, okay, here's my spiritual guide, right? Now, again, this could be the acid. We don't know, right, if he was really there. So he comes up to me, and he goes, you're going water skiing for the first time, and you're drunk? I said, yes, Frodo, what should I do? <laughs> Some of you got that, thanks. He goes, take these mushrooms, that'll even you out. And I thought, okay. <laughs> one pill makes you taller, and one pill makes you small. And the ones that Mother gives you don't do anything at all. <laughs> Pulling a white rabbit out of a hat. Great song. Don't know if that experience matches anyone's, but I know there are similar experiences people have had with legal drugs, illegal drugs. I want to make a few comments about what we heard just before the break on that uh, Steve Pakin agenda uh, excerpt that we heard. Alan Young was talking about can't sit in the fence. You know, he says, he says we have to have... We have a false choice. It has to be legalized. He says um, it's a false choice, prison or safety net. I don't even see it as that. I see it as prison or freedom. It's like, you know, that they're either going to lock you up in prison or they're going to lock you up in rehabilitation. I don't see the one being better than the other. Both are violations of freedom. You do lock people up when their behavior has become antisocial or harmful to others. Um, Peter on that discussion mentioned that you can't, can't punish people who have a disease. We don't punish people with high blood sugar. Well, not directly, but yeah, we do punish people with diseases and for eating badly. You hear that all the time. But the people we punish are the same people we punish in the drug trade. We usually go after the distributors, don't we? We punish the merchants and the producers who ha in, in the food trade who have to comply with government regulations, package warnings, warnings, and restrict sales to their own customers. Sugar, salt, fat warnings. Uh, sugary foods no longer sold in schools, unfairly taxed, just like cigarettes. We're going down the same path on so many substances that were once just daily parts of our diet. So we do indeed punish people who have diseases, but sometimes not directly. We're constantly looking for things to punish via people rather than behaviors as such. You know, if being stoned is morally wrong, then... How possibly could even being a little tipsy on alcohol be not equally morally wrong? You know, I don't think either in and of themselves are morally wrong, and all that depends on a host of other factors. 
But one thing I have noted is we always make exceptions for those who have sort of no choice about the pain that they are trying to avoid. If you've still got choice about your pain, well, then you're morally wrong for picking drugs. But if you don't have choice or the, cho- the other choices are just untenable, well, then suddenly we become the most forgiving people on the face of the earth. We're going to pay for your drugs. We're going to set up clinics for you. So, you know, we see the sick, the dying. So long as that pain is exclusively physical and the rest of us can see it, then go ahead, take all the drugs you want. Yeah, we'll pay for it. And, but if you want to alleviate stress, mental pain with illegal drugs, well, that's bad. We'll pay for your punishment and your incarceration instead. And that's why, one of the reasons why the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center is so full of mentally and emotionally disturbed individuals who certainly should not be there. We've had a discussion of that on the show before. You know, Ethan Nadelman's basic principles, no one should be punished for anything in their body so long as it, they don't hurt anyone else. Um, while he did mention freedom and responsibility instead of uh, sovereignty, though, I think these words are less precise than demanded by a principle. And while very true, it's not the basic principle, sovereignty over mind and body. The basic political principle is individual rights, that we all have a right to our own right or to, to our own life, liberty, and property, which together amount to freedom. This is not some isolated individualistic value or concept. It's a social concept in that it correctly defines the basis of our relationships with each other in a society where we can all have equal rights to be equally free from coercion, which is what we want to be free from when we talk about freedom. Telling you I won't eat pork is religion. Telling you that you can't eat pork is politics, said Judge Judd Matheny, Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives in Tennessee, to us a couple weeks ago. Very interesting comment. Yet he supported drug prohibition because he's a Republican. So I don't know how he's going to apply that principle to that particular issue. Now, on Sunday, November 18th, just a couple weeks ago, our old friend Mark Emery spoke to radio host Roy Green on the Chorus Radio Network from his jail cell in Mississippi. The first such interview granted since his incarceration, and uh, which occurred only weeks after he last appeared on this show, just right. He was given a 15-minute time limit to do the interview, and you can hear it for yourself on Roy Green's blog site if you look it up on Google. Also appearing on that same show from Vancouver was Mark's wife, Jody Emery. Now, Roy Green himself doesn't like the choice between decriminalization and legalization, arguing that the first option still encourages criminalism. He's totally correct. But the big news that Emery dropped, the bomb he drops on the show and that got all the news attention, was that Emery revealed that he had shared a joint with Justin Trudeau back in 2003, and that he thought that, well, Justin looked very comfortable with it. He has announced that Harper and Mulcair are tough guys and not particularly likable, says Mark, and so he likes Justin Trudeau. He also liked Jack Layton, by the way, and who is also a likable person to Emery. Trudeau, says Emery, is a likable person who's more malleable and willing to change his mind. He was once opposed to legalizing pot. That's Justin, that is. Justin Trudeau is an evolving person, said Mark, and Harper and Mulcair are not evolving and operate according to dogma. Then he reminds us that it was Trudeau's father, Pierre, who gave us the Ladane Commission. Now, personally, I think people who change their minds constantly are the least trustable. The previous Trudeau, Pierre, promised us liberalized drug laws after, and after earning the support of many who agreed and who spent their time and effort towards his election victories were ultimately betrayed. Their investment went out the window. 
What Emery recently wrote, you know, about the whole thing, too, in terms of drugs, is covering some of the issues that he covered in that 15 minutes. Um, he asked, what could possibly justify 60 to 90,000 dead in Mexico in the last six years? Civil war in Guatemala, Colombia, police state in America, or the millions in jail worldwide for drugs? And he asked a very good question. He says, what was the benefit to Canadian society for all of that suffering, all of the power and police state laws that we have given to our governments? Half of the jailed people in the U.S. are there for drugs, two million. Half of that, two million. And he says, quote, I've never heard a politician articulate what was given to us in return for all of this. And, of course, Mark's a little bitter about being in jail. He said, why did my government, both liberal and conservative, sign on to the DEA's charges when they already admitted that the reason I was being extradited was not for drugs, but for selling marijuana? And all of my, my actions were in Canada, he said. And then he, you know, he basically defended himself. He said, look at, he's not just any Canadian. He's protested all his life for freedom in Canada. No other Canadian has the resume that he has, and that's true. We've, we've demonstrated it here. He says, in Canada, I would never have gone to jails. But he felt very abandoned by Canada because he's now been extradited to the States, and he thinks he's been extradited for his record of service, as he put it. So, Emery has vowed to continue his war against the drug war when he does return to Canada, when his jail sentence is over. It'll be less than two years now. But, uh, interestingly, he comments, Canada will be in a worse state than when I left, and that there's no possible justification for prohibition. Roy Green commented that there, at his station and his, his listeners certainly have expressed, quote, a tremendous amount of support for Emery and uh, heard some interesting background stories of what it's like to be in the jail, even how he has to buy, he had to buy his 15 minutes airtime to get on the Roy Green show and they give him rationing and money and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, of course, you point out there are many people who don't smoke pot who want to end prohibition, you know, just for their own safety and, and protection. And, interestingly and true, as our drug law punishments get tougher, more violence erupts. And I thought this was a great quote from Jody Emery, quote, When you make laws tougher, the worst kind of people are the ones who stay in the game. When you're throwing mom and pop growers in the prisons for many years, take away their homes and their children and their dogs for many years, deny their right to travel, you're only making the gangsters more powerful and more rich and more ruthless. Witness Mexico. That's exactly what's happening there. And when asked, would she end the prohibition on hard drugs, she answered, yes. Awesome. Most addictions today are legal pharmaceutical drugs, she pointed out. So what's the point? Legal addictions and drug use versus illegal addictions and drug use. She didn't fall for that old prohibition <laughs> uh, scam about, you know, you're going to get rid of any violence with this. You're not. The illegality of all drugs has nothing to do with health reasons, and never did, by the way, except in the minds of the dishonest and clueless. State-paid doctors are in front of any, you know, ban any substance list. Because if they can't punish the user, just like the criminal legislatures, they'll choose to punish the producer, the trader, the capitalist. Because that's what prohibition is really all about. The prohibition of trade by some to the unearned benefit of others. And who continue to trade in the same thing being banned for others. LCBO, anyone? The Liquor Control Board? It does not control liquor. It controls the market. It should be called a market control board, but we like to lie to ourselves. It controls a trade by monopolizing and taking it over for itself. 
This prohibition is no different in principle or in practice, nor in consequence as are all trade barriers, labor monopolies, and business monopolies. And sad to say, the world is full of I hate this, you know, evil people who think they're doing good. These are evil ideas. So all of these, anything to do with trade barriers. We should have learned this. Many truly do not understand the nature of their own beliefs and philosophies, and that's why they become kind of what I was calling sociopaths with respect to the harm they cause to others. They actually want to see that pain, death, suffering, and punishment. I've heard it in their voices. I, he- I hear it in what they say. Now, legalize all drugs really means prohibit prohibition does not mean legalize all behaviors. It is prohibition that legalizes harmful behaviors, fuel for the flames, so to speak. Drugs cannot act on their own like guns. Drugs don't hurt people. People do. Simple drug use very rarely hurts people unless it's an overdose. Drug habits are a real problem. But I've said this on the show before. There are no safe drugs. Even drugs that are supposedly good for us and healthy for us aren't safe. But, of course, that's always a matter of dose and habit. London Free Press, December 10th, Politics and Pot by Jessica Murphy, who writes, quote, pro-pot Canadians pegging their hopes on Justin Trudeau one day reforming marijuana laws shouldn't hold their breath. Only the Greens fully back the legalization, regulation, and taxation of the drug. Pierre Trudeau never acted on the recommendations of the Lundane report, in part due to pushback within his own cabinet. University of Ottawa criminologist Eugene Oscapella, who believes that pot prohibition is a failed policy, conceded changing drug laws is easier said than done. First off, it's not a vote-getter, he says, end quote. Well, he's right about the non-vote-getting point. But personally, I think Oscapella has it backwards when he says changing drug laws is easier said than done. It's actually easier done than said. Constantly having to justify a perfectly rational and objective action is what's hard to do. Take Sunday shopping prohibition, for example. In theory, that debate on that issue could have gone on into infinity with no resolution and a continuation of the economic harm it caused. But all three parties opposed to ending prohibition finally did so, thanks to that other Paul Magder we talked about, Mark Emery, and Freedom Party, and the debate all but vanished from the political scene overnight. And that's how pot will eventually be legalized by someone or some party that doesn't keep talking about it all the time as an election priority. It's not a vote-getting issue. And this is what you have to understand, not because people don't think it's important one way or the other, or aren't being supportive, but because in elections, the legalization of pot and the elimination of other prohibitions, from Sunday shopping to gambling, whatever, prayers in school, who knows, these things simply take a back seat to the economy and to jobs and taxation. Of course, there's always a large group of minorities who do vote by prioritizing their issues of interest, but that's how the majority votes, especially in economically tough times. So, the reality of the electoral, not the social or legal situation, is that any party that puts pot on the front burner as one of its priority issues will likely be the last party eligible to actually change the laws on pot. Just an observation. I might be wrong. I'd like to be proven wrong. But that's where I've got to leave it for now. So let's take a break. When we return, we'll take a quick look at the secret to inner peace. It won't be by drugs either. And at least one ancient Chinese philosopher's interpretation of it. And that's Yang too. We'll return. I'm giving an anti-drug speech at the grammar school. And I need you to be sober. <laughs> what? Sober. The Sasquatch. He tells kids to stay off drugs. And you think... Kids are going to listen because some idiot's dressed in a gorilla suit? You know, it's 
Sasquatch. Children love and fear him. That's asinine. Oh, come on, Dean. You're perfect for it. And if I stop shaving your back, you won't even have to wear the suit. And now I walk away. Hey, but good luck with that speech, because kids just love being patronized and lectured. Master Shifu! Hey! Master Shifu, what do we got? Pirates? Vandals of Volcano Mountain? Whatever it is, I will take them down. Because I am in a mood. I need to get something done, you know what I mean? Uh, what are you doing? One of Master Ugwe's final teachings. Whoa! <laughs> awesome! How did you do that? Inner peace. Inner peace? That's cool. Inner peace of what? It is the next phase of your training. Every master must find his path to inner peace. Some choose to meditate for 50 years in a cave just like this. Without the slightest taste of food or water. Or some find it through pain and suffering, as I did. Oh, the day you were chosen as Dragon Warrior was the worst day of my life. By far, nothing else came close. It was the worst, most painful, mind-destroying, horrible moment okay. I have ever experienced. But once I realized the problem was not you, but within me, I found inner peace and was able to harness the flow of the universe. So that's it? I just need inner peace? My innards are already super, super peaceful, so all I need to do is just get this thing going. Inner peace? You're going down. Now show me what you were doing there with your feet. I saw you do sort of a fancy foot Ho! thing. Bandits, approaching the musician's village. Danger. Tell those musicians to start playing some action music because it is on. Don't worry, Shifu, I'll master inner peace as soon as I get back. No snack stops this time. <laughs> snack stops. <laughs> Wait, are you serious? A while back, one of our listeners suggested we take a closer look at the ancient Chinese philosopher Yang Tzu, who, that listener suggested, sounded a lot like what he was hearing preached on this show, just right. So, just thought I'd take a very quick look, because I sure don't have a lot of time to do it right now, because we're going to take, go back and take a slower look at the larger debate uh, that surrounded this whole philosophy issue of that time, because I think there are many lessons to be derived and applied from it. Now, Yang Chu lived you know, around 400 B.C., and, uh, and is a main figure associated with the Chinese school of philosophy, now generally known as Yangism, or the Yang Chu School. And the details of his life and even his teachings have been, for the most part, lost over time, but they have enough information on him from other philosophers to piece together his idea and school of basic thought. Yangism emphasizes the individual over macro-society, and life, health, and genuineness over external things, reputation, and mere ceremony. According to the philosophy's basic teachings, the world cannot be put in order by individuals. And any individual who attempts to do so will not only act in vain, he'll inevitably end up neglecting his own self in life. In other words, it is not necessary for an individual to run the world to bring it into order. 
And not only will such an attempt ultimately fail to truly reform the people morally, nobody really has a leisure to undertake such a task if he or she, she properly attends to his or her own personal duty in life. It is enough to be a healthy person, says the philosophy, live our true lives and consider and weigh matters and risks based on what is genuinely useful, beneficial, and life-nourishing. And since life is what is clearly what is important and most valuable, we should have slight regard for mere external things themselves and never treat them as more important than life. External things should only be used to nourish, benefit, enhance, and preserve life. And to damage the self in order to benefit is a serious confusion over the importance of matters. And that's from Yang, too, from the Wikipedia um, Encyclopedia Online. Interesting, they do, they do point out, of course, that is the Chinese way of saying the name. It, we would say it the other way around. They put the first name last, so we would say Chu Yang. That would be more how we might say his name. What I find interesting, and I just have to say this, you know, as the most significant thing about discovering the ideas and existence of Yang Chu is how his role and that is of his contemporaries paralleled philosophically the same debate that was going on in ancient Greece almost during the same period in time with Plato and with Aristotle. Now, this period of time in both cultures, I think Eastern and Western, are the earliest linked periods to that you can really draw a direct line to, to today's ideas and civilizations. Aristotle went out in the West recently with the unprecedented advancement of freedom. But today we're seeing a resurgence of Platonic philosophy, which leads back to the idea of the totalitarian state, etc., and to those proverbial fiscal cliffs that all such states eventually find themselves tumbling over. And interestingly, in the same way that the only written evidence of some of the works of, I think it's Socrates, actually only exist in the writings of Plato and Aristotle, so too the only written evidence of Yang Tzu appears to come from subsequent Chinese philosophers who were influenced by him. And, of course, he's kind of the, the total opposite philosophy of Confucius and Confucianism. So, what we do see is that, you know, philosophy reveals itself to be a universal necessity without which human beings remain directionless. It's interesting. A summary of Yang Chu, as I saw it in, uh, in Wikipedia, was, was written up as such, quote, Life is full of suffering, and its chief purpose is pleasure. There is no God and no afterlife. Men are the helpless puppets of the blind natural forces that made them and that gave them their unchosen ancestry and their inalienable character. The wise man will accept this fate without complaint, but will not be fooled by all the nonsense of Confucius and Mosi about the inherent virtue, universal love, and a good name. Morality is a deception practiced upon the simple by the clever. Universal love is the delusion of children who do not know the universal enmity that forms the law of life. And a good name is a posthumous bauble which the fools who paid so dearly for it cannot enjoy. In life, the good suffer like the bad and the wicked seem to enjoy themselves more keenly than the good. That was quoted by Durant. So, you know, there you go. You see that need for a philosophy, both personal and, of course, public for um, society. Now, Robert and I were planning to take a look at this guy together, and I, thought, I know Robert has some tremendous insights, so expect us here another show, perhaps given more time to the whole issue on a future broadcast of Just Right. But... 
let's remember what we talk about when we, when we mean civilization. You know, a society can't be said to be civilized unless, to some degree, it has banned physical force and human relationships. With the civilized use of defensive and retaliatory force being subject to the protection of life, liberty, and property, which I think is always a move in the right direction. And that's the direction that we've got to keep moving in before the clock runs out for another hour or so. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey. See you then. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Hello, I'm Judy Kahn, your campus girl on the go. And tonight, I'm talking with a modern Johnny Appleseed. Tell me, Johnny, what exactly do you do? Well, you know, I just wander around the campuses, planting seeds wherever I go. <laughs> then in a few years, thanks to you, our colleges and universities will be lined with apple trees, right? Apple trees. Hey, you're putting me on, aren't you, man? Oh, you, you can't smoke apples. They won't stay lit. There's another corn silk joke. Oh, you, you can't smoke apples. <laughs> They won't stay lit. There's another corn silk joke.